0: Guys, please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 15. We are going to start at verse 22. We are going to go through Mark's description of the crucifixion. And as Mark writes this, remember Mark is writing being dictated to by Peter is what we believe. This is kind of like the Gospel of Peter that was written by Mark, one of the associates of Peter, and so this this is the series of, and it just goes pow, 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 much in Mark's format. It's like 14 or 15 bullet points of the crucifixion. He doesn't dwell on anything really in particular. But he's addressing people, he's writing to people with a Roman background that are in Rome, a lot of people in Rome, and a lot of the people that he's addressing are Gentiles who are very, very familiar with Rome. That's the key, that's the direction of his gospel. And so when he talks about stuff, like for example, he says, you know, when they, when they crucified Jesus, whereas the other gospels give great detail of some of the things that happened, Mark just says, and then they took him and crucified him. It was like, that's it. Why did he do that? Well, because he's writing to an audience that principally knows exactly what crucifixion is. He's writing to an audience that know exactly what Roman guards are. He's writing to an audience that, that is not Jewish like the audience that Matthew wrote to. And so he doesn't refer to a whole lot of Jewish prophecy. But he's writing to people that dare I say are probably more like us. And so, as we read this, we're just going to go pow, 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 pow. Well, I'm going to you know how I do. I'll do slow pows. <laughs> we'll do pow, and then a little bit of a commentary and a pow. But we will go through his bullet points that he felt were the most important things to, communic- to communicate to his audience about the crucifixion. Now, as we get ready to read about the crucifixion and what happened, I want you to take special note of the way that people reacted to Jesus. I want you to look for thieves I want, that were crucified with him. I want you to look at the cher, uh, uh Pharisees, and chief priests. That, that's, that's how you combine those two words. I, I sent somebody a text yesterday or Friday morning while I was making bacon and eggs. And I, I sent a text to my grandson's mom and I said, uh, Jordan's making some PBJ sandwiches for our little excursion today while I'm making aiken and eggs for <laughs> breakfast. So if I talk that way this morning, you'll kind of figure me out, okay? God uses flawed people, am I right? And by the way, and don't you be thinking, yeah, man, are you flawed? No, no, don't, don't be going there. But listen, did any of you see the release of the movie Jesus Revolution? You went out of town to see it? We've got a few here, a few here. Amazing movie of the beginning of the Jesus movement in 1969-70 and how our church fellowship, Calvary Chapel, was, was ignited from a, a little struggling church to a movement that basically has reached to the four corners of the earth. And it's an amazing movie about how God uses flawed people to accomplish his God-sized and perfect purposes. See, you being a sinner... By the way, am I talking to any sinners this morning? You being a sinner does not stop what God wants to do. Now, I will tell you this. He will still use you even even if you do stupid things and you walk in sin. He's still going to use you, but if you want to enjoy him using you, and if you want to have a real fruitful time in your life, then follow him, submit to him, obey him, and watch him and enjoy him using you. Hopefully that makes sense. But God is bigger than a weak God that can be stopped because some of his followers are flawed. He works through flawed people. So if you believe that, how many of you are qualified for God to work through? Raise your hands right now. Uh Uh-huh. Really good. Some of you tell me you don't like to raise your hands in church. I just saw you. (laughs) You did it. You did it. So you've crossed the line. Now you can raise your hands in church, right? As we go through this, remember the purpose, the reason why Jesus went to the cross. Remember that nobody... Forced him to do it. Remember that he did it of his own accord. He said, nobody takes my life. I give up my life for you. Remember that the whole motive here. That he endured the pain of going to the cross. For the joy set before him. And who was the joy? What was the joy? You are. Every Christian, every person that's ever believed in him through the centuries is what he saw. That's the goal. And guys, your faces were part of that. Now, if you know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know what I'm talking about this morning. But I want you to know that Jesus endured the horrific death on a cross he endured not only the physical torture, but he also endured the spiritual torture of having your sins and my sins heaped upon him. He endured that because he loves you. Somebody help me with this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so what? Loved. loved. He did it because he loved you. He knows you're flawed. He knows what you're like. And he still loves you. In spite of who you are. And in spite of who I am. Okay, so first, here we go. Get ready for a, a quick trip up to Mount Calvary, Golgotha. Now, at uh, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong place. Yeah, I'm going to start back at at verse 5. No, 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 no. We're up to verse 22. Don't do that again, Mick. Okay. Verse 22 of chapter 15 of Mark. This is after they are on the road to Calvary. And after this guy called Simon of Cyrene has picked up the cross when Jesus stumbled and carried it out to the destination, that then it says, verse 22, they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull or place of skulls, place of the skull. The place where Jesus was crucified was on the little crest of a very small hill that's outside the city of Jerusalem called Golgotha. Golgotha is the Aramaic word for skull place, place of skulls. Now, Wyatt, if we got, did we get a picture up? Okay, let's try to do this. I don't know if you can see this picture. If you, if you look in this area right here, what you see is what looks like the forehead, the eyes, and the indentation of what would be a mouth. This is a picture of the most likely site that matches the biblical description in Israel, right outside Jerusalem, of the place of the skull. Did we have any more, or just that one, Wyatt? Uh, Just that one, one. okay. But there is a top, there's a crest over here, where they've got some communication equipment now. (laughs) But 2,000 years ago, we had some other communication equipment in the form of a cross, in which Jesus communicated to the Father that I have taken the sins of all humanity upon myself. So Golgotha, it means the place of the skull. Now, wouldn't it be kind of weird if our church was named Golgotha Chapel? <laughs> or even more so, if we had a church named Skull Chapel. is that cool? How many of you want to change names? Skull Chapel. Yeah, hey, weirdo. Yeah. But the real deal is the word in Latin for skull is Calvaria. Our church is called Skull Chapel with a Latin word, Calvary. That means skull. That means the place of death. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ he said that that the cross I preach the cross though it is foolishness to the Gentiles and though it is a stumbling block to the Jews it's the cross of Jesus Christ which is the foundation of our belief what happened on the cross he voluntarily gave up his life to take the suffering that you and I deserve and somehow when he said my God my God why have you forsaken me and then he spent six hours on the cross somehow the first time ever in eternity past and ever in the future the only time that Jesus was separated in fellowship with him from his father was because our sin was upon him that he who knew no sin became sin for us the one who created or that did no sin he was punished For every sin, every type of sin, every category of sin. And as you go through the crucifixion and the beating and the spitting upon and the hitting. And then finally the the crucifixion. He was punished for all kinds of sins. And your sins would fall into those categories that he's already received physical and spiritual punishment of separation from God. He was separated from God while on the cross so that you and I would never have to be separated from God. That is the most important thing. If you forget everything else I say this morning, and you'll probably remember, okay, Skull Chapel. All right, we'll we'll give you that one. But the most important thing is that he was separated from God for a period on the cross so that you didn't have to be. He loved you. He loves you, no matter who you are, what you've done. They took him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. They tried, verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. So the second thing that Mark just points out is they tried to give him a drink, but he wouldn't take it. Now, later on, he does ask for a drink. You remember, he says, I thirst and he takes a drink. But as Mark points out and the book of John chapter 19 points out, it was two different kinds of drink. You see, in the Old Testament, even the Jews, it was back in the Proverbs 31, 6 and 7, it says, for those who are about to undergo the punishment of death, give them strong drink. Allow them strong drink. Basically, it dumb them down a little bit. It's an an anesthesia. And it's, it's one of those things that you take that you don't feel. <laughs> and that's what they're offering him. Note wine mixed with myrrh, mixed with this, this painkiller. And he says, no, I don't want it. So Mark points out the fact that Jesus didn't want the pain to be reduced at all. He wanted to experience everything that every sinner would ever re- uh, that th- should have experienced. He didn't want it. Now we're going to find out later he does take a drink, but it doesn't have the myrrh in it. It's sour wine. It's also called vinegar. Some of you like apple cider vinegar. I don't know what's wrong with you. I hate that. It's so bitter. Well, it's but what they gave him later for a different purpose was just a little drink on a sponge, and they wet his whistle with it, basically. And there's a purpose to that. So you you have, here, take something that'll dull the pain. Nope. Verse 24. The next thing. And they crucified him. That's what Mark says. And they crucified him. Four words that, for his audience, they knew exactly what that meant. For us, who aren't Romans and who haven't seen anybody crucified, I wanted to read to you a brief description. This is from Dave Guzik's com- commentary. Some of you use that Blue Letter Bible commentary. Dave Guzik is a, a, an acquaintance, a light friend of mine that I served with in Germany for a while. Description of the crucif- crucifixion. And I forgot my paper, so I had to grab it real quick on my, uh, online. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. It was actually against the law, the Roman law, to crucify a Roman citizen because of its extreme brutality, except in rare cases with the order of Caesar himself. So here's how it went. Before the crucifixion, you remember Jesus was scourged. Often they would do that. The victim's back was first torn open by the scourging. When In Jesus' case, Pilate ordered him to be scourged, 39 lashes with this cat-of-nine-tails kind of thing that, that has bone and metal and glass woven into the, the threads of leather. And so they, as, they, as he would take the whip and they, it would stick into his skin and they would yank, the the leather out and they would just rip up his back it says then the and they did it with jesus to try to get him to confess of something there was nothing to confess i guess if we would wanted to be theologically accurate he could have begun to tell my sins and your sins in front of pilate because that's what he was taking it for because by the stripes that he took we are spiritually healed forever when, uh, so the, the, he was the first torn open, the back was torn open by the scourging, then the clotting blood was ripped open once again when the clothes were torn off the victim. You remember Jesus after the scourging, he's got this purple robe on, he comes, then, and before they crucify him, they take the robe off, and of course you're pulling off clotted blood and opening the wounds again. When he was thrown to the ground to fix his hands to the crossbeam, the wounds were again torn open. And contaminated with dirt. Then, as he hung on the cross, this is what really gets me. Each breath made the painful wounds on the back scrape against the rough wood of the upright beam. It's the breathing process that really gets me. We're going to get to that. When the nail was driven through the wrists, it severed the large median nerve going to the hand. This stimulated nerve produced, nerve-produced excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and could result in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Beyond the excruciating pain, the posture, this is the one that gets me, I was a little off when I said that earlier, beyond the excruciating pain, the posture of crucifixion made it painful to simply breathe. The weight of the body... Pulling down on the arms and shoulders made it feel like you could breathe in, but not out. The lack of oxygen led to severe muscle cramps, making it even harder to breathe. To get a good breath, one had to push against the feet and flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders. Putting the full weight of the body on the nail-pierced feet produced searing pain, and flexing the elbows... "...twisted the hands hanging on the nails, lifting the body for a breath, also scraped open the open wounds on the back, and each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and resulted in a quicker death, often often because of suffocation. If the victim did, did, did not die quickly enough, then his legs were often broken." That way he would be unable to breathe, unable to push up off of the nail-pierced feet to get a breath in. Guys, that was crucifixion. Mark describes it in four words. And they crucified him. They divided up, verse 24, they divided up his garments amongst themselves. Now we see in another gospel, these are the soldiers. I told you, watch the people. The soldiers, back before they took him on the road to Calvary, the soldiers were spitting at him. They were covering his eyes and hitting him with sticks with their fists and saying, prophesy, who hit you? Now the soldiers are dividing up his garments amongst themselves, not tearing them up, but the really cool purple robe that herod had placed on him a valuable robe they didn't want to rip it up it was too valuable so they cast lots for it casting lots for it to decide what each man should take so they wanted to keep isn't that interesting they want to preserve the garments while destroying the person that was wearing the garments but that's what sin does Make the outside, let's maintain the outside, and let's destroy the inside. That's sin, guys. Verse 25, it says, it was at the third hour when they crucified him. So I've got there at Galgotha, he refused to drink, they divided the garments, they crucified him. Number four, at the third hour, which the way that Romans reckoned time, they started with when the sun came up, approximately six o'clock sunrise. So at the third hour, this is nine o'clock in the morning. Now, you remember, it was only within the last 12 hours that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and that he was brought before Pilate, before Herod, before the Jewish Sanhedrin that called an emergency meeting all during the night. He hasn't slept all night long. It's the third hour when they crucified him. In other words, nine o'clock in the morning. In the inscription of the charge... Against him, the next bullet point that Mark gives us. They always put, when somebody was being crucified, the charge. It was usually murder or it was treason. Here's Jesus' charge that read, The King of the Jews. Now, in one of the other Gospels, it says, The people told Pilate, No, 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 right, he said he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate says, "I've written what I've written. Let it be." So here he is. What's Jesus? What is Jesus's crime against the Roman Empire that he would have a Roman execution, death of crucifixion? That he said he was a king. That he said he was a king of a different realm. And then Pilate got a little freaked out when he tried Jesus the last time, especially after his wife sends the message saying, I had a really, really, really bad dream, which they interpreted as a spiritual communication. And I was warned to warn you not to do anything to this righteous man, to let him go. And then Pilate understands that not only is he called the king of the Jews, he is also called by his disciples the son of God. And it says, when Pilate heard this, he became extremely afraid. So Pilate, I mean, I'd hate to be in Pilate's shoes. I'd hate to be in Pilate's shoes on the day of judgment. But even in this day. So he writes, I'm not going to say he said he was the king. Uh, I'm writing he's the king. Now, was that a statement of faith by Pilate? If if so, it was a statement that a whole lot of people try to make today and say, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to follow him or surrender to him. It was that kind of a thing. But here Mark says, the king of the Jews is what they had. Okay, next, what I have six on my list. They crucified, verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. What's the point of that statement? He's crucified with two other people. You, know, you remember one of the guys that got set free that we talked about last week that should have been there? What was his crime, Barabbas' crime? Is insurrection and murder, treason and murder. If anybody deserved to be executed by the Roman government, according to their law, it was Barabbas. With Jesus, he's right in the middle of two other guys who have earned crucifixion, who have earned execution, capital punishment. Okay, then we get to verse 20, 28. And the scripture in Mark... And this is one of those verses, your, your version may or might, may not have it, this verse in the Greek language of the original manuscripts. Some of them you find, some of the copies, and some of them you don't. But where either Mark or a commentator later added, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Psalm 22, he's going to be, the, the, the servant of God is going to be thrown in with the transgressors. So here they are, Jesus in the middle of, of two crooks and himself you got bad holy bad isn't it interesting that in heaven jesus is going to be surrounded by a whole bunch of people that don't deserve heaven you and me now should i ask how many of you have been thieves or crooks that was their thing right i'm not going to ask i don't want to know but here's what i want you to know i don't care where what your past has been and what decisions you've made in the past and what actions, behaviors, what hateful things that you've done in the past, the best news is that Jesus still wants you next to him. He still, he still wants to be surrounded by sinners. Yeah, redeemed sinners. Let's be real clear about that. Because he does not endorse the sinful pattern of life, the carnal pattern of life. He wants to be surrounded by sinners. That's why he went to the cross for you and me. Okay, verse 29. Next, watch the haters. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, even dramatically, watch this, wagging their heads. Now, that was something cultural to them. Can I ask you try to say something while wagging your head? I mean, to me that's just so dramatic. Do you want to, anybody want to try? No, you're looking at me like no, not me. And they're saying stuff, wagging their heads is just like, oh, I can't believe what an idiot you were. I can't believe how guilty you are. I can't believe what a moron you are. And they're saying stuff like, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So here's the passers-by. Keep reading. In the same way. The chief priests also, remember I told you to watch the people? The passers-by hurling abuse at him, haters of Jesus. In the same way, the chief priest, who, um, along with the scribes, so the big heavyweights in the Jewish religion, were mocking him and among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. You remember when Jesus was arrested and Peter pulled out his sword and he starts swinging, I think, for the guy's head, but he missed and got his ear, and Jesus heals his ear. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know I could have called six legions of angels if I wanted to? A legion of angels. Six legions. That's 72,000 angels. He says, These guys. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of truth to that. He cannot save himself from the direction and devotion of life that he has chosen. He cannot save himself from being our sacrifice for sin because he chose it. He's not going to save himself. And of course, this is their way of trying to get him to show us a trick. Show us, And then verse 32, let this Christ... The king of Israel, this is still the, the chief priest, the scribes. Let this Messiah, that's what the word Christ is. You're, here's, your, here's our Messiah up on the cross. <laughs> Let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from that cross so that we may see and believe. Oh, Really? You're not going to believe with all of the miracles that you saw. You're not going to believe when you were arguing with him in a synagogue when he healed somebody (laughs) on the Sabbath day and you told him, We're glad you healed, but we don't want you healing on the Sabbath. Blasphemy! You ought to be killed. You're you're, You're really going to believe? No. Let him come down so that we can see and believe. Jesus told these same people earlier, He said, when, you know, do something so that we can believe in you. And he said, the only sign that you're going to be given is the sign of Jonah. Which is, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth, and then we'll come back to life. You want a sign, guys? Hang around the tomb for three days and see what happens. So you have passersby that were haters accusing him. Insulting him. You have chief priests and scribes who are insulting him. Hating on him. Then those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now we also know that according to Matthew. One of them. After both were insulting Jesus. One says. Hey. This guy has done nothing wrong. We're receiving the just due for our penalty. He's done nothing wrong. And that's when he turns to Jesus. Remember I said watch the people they're all insulting they're all hating and here's this thief and he says Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom you remember that did this thief deserve it he deserved crucifixion did he deserve to be in the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom? no he was a sinner but Jesus looks at him and he says I'm telling you the truth today you're going to be with me in paradise. Here's the good news. Haters can become followers. How about these chief priests? Was there ever any hope for them? The book of Acts says after the disciples went around sharing and having lots of negative confrontations with the chief priests and with the scribes in and around the city of Jerusalem, it says finally many of the chief priests or many of the priests became believers in Jesus. So some of these haters became believers in Jesus. How about the passers-by? That we're saying, hurling insult at him and wagging their heads. Yeah. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2? Day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection or after Passover, after the crucifixion. Jesus says or uh, Peter stands up and says to these people when the holy spirit falls on the on, on the christians they began speaking in tongues which at that particular case were languages that other people understood and the people said we hear these guys they're galileans they're uneducated they're a bunch of hillbillies and they're speaking our language our dialect and we're hearing them declare the mighty deeds of god what were they doing speaking in tongues But praising God, notice that it wasn't a message to the people. It was a message of praise to God, declaring the mighty deeds of God. And then the people say, these guys are drunk. You remember that? And then Peter Peter says, no, these guys are not drunk as you suppose. But this is what is prophesied in the book of Joel, where he says, I will pour forth of my spirit and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream Your young men will see visions. That's right, because I'm a dreamer now. And your old men will dream dreams. (laughs) I used to see visions. Now I dream dreams. And he said, this is what was prophesied. And not only that, and then they said, well, what shall we do to be saved? He tells them about Jesus. What shall we do to be saved? You, and this is the very group. You were there. You called out for his crucifixion. You, who incited the Romans to crucify him, believe Repent, believe, and be baptized for the remission of sins. And that day, that first day, that you, we look at that kind of as the birthday of the Gentile, or not the Gentile church, but the church as a unit that then largely goes toward a Gentile thing when the Jews reject Jesus. But these Jewish people were the first converts of the church, about 3,000. That was just men because they were chauvinistic. They only counted the men. Could have been six, could have been 10,000 women and kids. But what I want you to see is these people that were passers-by that were calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus that were now insulting Him while He was on the cross. These people in Acts chapter 2, many of them come to Christ. What I want you to know is that people who are haters can become lovers. People who hated Jesus, once touched by the Lord, the power of the Lord, Once they see the truth of the gospel and the good news and the love of Christ, they can change. Some of you guys were haters. Our whole leadership board were haters of Jesus at one time. But Jesus, who is also called the friend of, somebody help me, friend of sinners, continued to reach out in love to those who hated him. Well, I don't hate Jesus. I just don't want him to be my Lord. Because I don't want him to be the boss. I want to get into heaven. I want him to be in the backseat of the car when I say I'm with him. But I don't want him to drive. Well, the scripture tells us that we need to receive him as our Savior and Lord. If you confess your mouth Jesus as Lord, that means boss. That means surrender to him. But here's the wonderful part of the gospel is those of us who are apart from God. We can become the friends of God through the forgiveness of Jesus. Okay, keep going. Verse 33. When the sixth hour came, which was noon, three hours later, nine o'clock to noon. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, until 3 p.m. So you got three hours of absolute darkness. Now, I, remember I said, m- look at the people. The Romans had been involved in the scourging of Jesus, had been involved in the, bringing Jesus up to Mount Calvary, to Calvary Chapel Hill. <laughs> the, they had beat him. They had mocked him. They had taken his garments. And watch what happens now. Three hours, darkness until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is an Arabic, Aramaic phrase that was their common trade language, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is actually the start of the first verse in Psalm chapter 22, a messianic psalm about the, the death of, of the servant of God who would bring forgiveness to the people. So in some ways, people look and they say, well, Jesus was telling people, look, you guys, read your own Bible. It's in Psalm 22. This is what I'm doing. But in another way, he was saying, my God, why have you forsaken me for the first time ever in the existence of Jesus Christ in the past eternity? And and at that time and then moving on, the only time that he would ever be forsaken broken in fellowship with the father because our sins were upon him so that was the the declaration that he makes now apparently verse 35 the declaration may have been affected by the dehydration of jesus the swelling of the tongue which always would happen the the mouth the tongue the throat swelling and as he's crying out Eloi, Eloi, Eloi. You know how something like that. A lot of the bystanders did not understand him. They didn't understand that he was using an Old Testament word for the Father, for God, for the Mighty One. My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi. And they thought he was calling, verse 35, some of them, they began saying, hey, he's calling for Elijah. He wasn't calling for Elijah. He was talking about God, his Father, And the separation from God. But I want you to see at this point, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. That's that vinegar drink. Put it on a reed and gave him a drink. And then they also said, let's see whether Elijah will come down to to take him down. Let's see. He's calling out for help for Elijah. Let's see what happens. But I want you to notice. And this no doubt happened. John records Jesus said, I thirst. So they give him a drink. Why did Jesus need a drink? He's at the end of his crucifixion. Did he need it? I don't think so. I think he understood clear well that the people didn't understand what he was saying. And so here he is, swollen tongue, dehydrated, completely exhausted. He wants something to wet the organs in his mouth so that the next thing that he says is absolutely clear. So they gave him this drink, and then Jesus, verse 37, and I'm thinking, come on, Mark, put the whole thing in here. He says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. That just sounds almost anticlimactic, but when, when you read in, in the book of John, his account of the crucifixion, he said after he received the, the drink, basically he, he, he wet he wet his tongue. He, he got ready and he made this incredible proclamation. It is finished. And everybody heard it. He used a Greek word known among the people, known among the Romans, a Greek word, one word, to tell us die, which we would translate. What, an, what would be put on an invoice of payment due when it's paid in full to die, It's paid in full. Jesus, it's like, okay, they didn't understand the Eloi Eloi thing. Give me something on my lips. Give me something on my tongue because I want them to hear this. It is finished. And then he, his head bowed and he died. Absolutely amazing. He wanted them all to hear that something had been paid for. Guys, what had been paid for? Your your rebellion and of, of sin. And you go, wait, whoa, 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 that's strong, Mick. I'm not rebellious. No, but the Bible says that anything that we've done for ourselves in pride, in love of ourself, it may not be hurtful to other people, but it's all about me being the Lord of my life, is sin. Anything that we done have done that does not honor God. God is the most important thing of our life. It's sin. Some of us have sinned worse than others. The commonality is we've all sinned. We've sinned. That sin on Jesus. So here we go. The loud cry. It is paid for. Paid in full. It's finished. It's done. What a wonderful statement. Guys, And I want, to, I want you to know beyond a doubt. The only way you're going to get to heaven is the payment that was made by Jesus Christ. The payment due to a holy God that demanded death for sin. That His death covers every sin. Covers every one of us. Once for all. So that you don't need to keep getting saved. Once you turn to Jesus and accept Him as your Lord and Savior. You are delivered. You are saved. You don't need to keep paying for it. He already paid for it. It's an insult for you to think that you have to earn your salvation. Jesus paid the price. Does that make sense? He paid for it. Don't, don't try to pay him, but try to honor him in the way you live. It says, man, you paid for my salvation. I'm free. I'm eternally secure in you. Then I want to live my life in a way that honors the one who paid for my salvation. That's what we call devoted Christian followers. Now, as we end this thing up, uh, verse 38, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Mark presents this for his Jewish readers. Just remember, guys, that that big old thick drape in the temple that separated the holy place where the priests could come and would go in daily to do prayers and things like that, that this big old curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, which was looked at as the very presence of God, that that veil, that curtain was torn, and it wasn't torn by man's hand, which would have been bottom to top. This is a 15. no, this is Herod's temple. This is a very high, perhaps even a 30-foot-high drape, and you have, it's torn, it says, from top to bottom. It's like, man didn't tear it from the bottom up. God tore it from the top down. What did the veil represent? The veil represented the separation between holy God and sinful man. And now with Jesus paying the, the price, the veil's torn. So beautiful. What a beautiful thing. And then, remember I said, look at the people? When the centurion, verse 39, was standing right in front of him. Somehow, when I read this verse, I have John Wayne in my mind. Some of you saw the the movie, right? I mean, John Wayne plays the centurion. This is an old movie, probably black and white. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him, when he saw the way he breathed his last, how did he breathe his last? He took a deep breath and he said, it is finished and and then expired. This guy says what Pilate was too afraid to say. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Had Pilate realized that instead of just being afraid of the possibility, he may have never sent Jesus to the cross. But you see, God had, in predeterminate from eternity past, Pilate was going to do that. Pilate was going to feel that way. Pilate was going to send him to the cross. Why? Because he needed to go to the most excruciating death voluntarily to be a sacrifice for you and me. So as we look at this in the the centurion's confession, man, this may be of the same centurion that was beating him with sticks or his hands when he was blindfolded. This may be of the same centurion that was whipping him as he was walking up the road to Calvary. This may be, who knows what this guy was, but he, being a hater of Jesus, is turned to a believer in Jesus. And that is the, the good news of the story that no matter where we start, guys, We can have what the scripture calls a change of mind, a change of heart, where we can believe, and then God quickens our heart, makes us alive in him. We who were dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. The same way Jesus, three days later, came back to life. Guys, you and I share in his life if we believe in him. So, bottom line, you're either going to be a hater of Jesus, or you're going to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. It puts the impetus on man, on woman to make the decision. What are you going to do? The choice is yours. And he's just reaching out saying, I love you. I died for you. I love you. I want to do, I, I do incredible things in your life. I want to fill you with joy and peace. I want to I be your Lord. I want you to surrender to me. I have blessings you cannot even imagine but it takes us saying yes. So if you've never said yes to Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to stick around, talk to me, one of the other leaders at the church here. You'll, you'll find us by the donuts in the, uh, in the fellowship hall. And we would love to share with you more and pray with you of how you can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord. But well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing story, as Mark points out, Various things that, that have touched my heart this week. I pray, God, that they would touch this truth of your word, would touch the heart of your people. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, that today would be the day when, like the centurion, like the guys 50 days later in Acts, Lord, that, these pe- that, that people would say yes to you and declare who you are, like the thief, Lord, who would declare you. They would have that change of heart and mind. So Lord, I pray that you would bless, you would strengthen us. Guys, keep your eyes closed, your uh, head bowed just for another minute. I just want to finish this by saying any of you that would...